Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Merry Christmas, everybody. If we don't see you on Christmas Eve, I hope you guys have a great Christmas. Hope you're ready for Christmas. Somebody asked me, were we ready for Christmas? I think we're close. Got your Christmas tree up, which I think is one of the strangest traditions of Christmas is the Christmas tree. I, I, you know, I love it. We do it. But why? I mean, what does a tree have to do with the birth of God's son? You know, I don't know. He wasn't born in a forest. I don't know why we do that, but we do. And But there is a Christmas tree I want to talk about today that has everything to do with the birth of God's son. It's the Christmas tree that's found in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' family tree. So let's get our Bibles out, turn our devices on. Let's go to Matthew 1 and let's shake the tree, okay? And let's see what falls out. Matthew 1 is one of those uh, passages that you tend to skip over. It's one of those beget passages, right? Abraham beget Isaac, Isaac beget Jacob, and off we go. And when you're reading through the Bible, this is one of those passages you speed read. Because until you really know the backstory of the personalities involved, it's just too much. And so we tend to skip over them. But there is a powerful and profound lesson from this Christmas tree that I want us to look at more closely this morning. In fact, this is one of my favorite parts of the Christmas epic. Um, Because here's the point. Jesus wasn't born in a vacuum. He was born into a family with cousins and uncles and grandparents and great-grandparents. And like every family tree, Jesus' family tree had some bad apples, which to me is the story. And I wanted to take a few minutes and look at some of these unique personalities that are in the tree to find encouragement and hope for us today. So let's start with the women. There are four women named in the tree. The reason there's only four women is this is basically a genealogy traced through the male line. And so they would only bring the women out if there was something unique to their story. Now there's four, not including Mary. The first is Tamar, so let's start with her. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Tamar was their mother. Now that seems innocent enough until you know the backstory of Tamar. According to Genesis 38, 1, Judah married a Canaanite named Shua. Wait a minute, I thought you said Tamar uh, had sons by Judah, but his wife was named Shua. It gets worse. Shua and Judah had three boys. Er, Onan, and Shelah. And Tamar was married to Judah's first son, Er, Genesis 38, verse 6. Now, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, you starting to feel it? Getting a little uncomfortable? Wait a second. If Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, then how did she have Zerah and Perez by Judah, I, I told you, there's some bad apples in this tree. Here's what happened. Er married Tamar. Bible says that Er was so wicked that God took his life. Now, under, in those days, under leveret marriage, and it was different than today, 
You know, today, if a, if a woman is left widowed, she has some opportunities for life. But in that environment, it was, it was such a masculine-dominated environment that the women had very little opportunities for employment. There was very little they could do. And so essentially, if you lost your husband, you either found another husband or you became a beggar or a prostitute. Those were really the only options available. And so they developed this thing called levered marriage, which was used all the time, and that was the next of kin would marry whoever was left as a widow. And in this case, that would have been Judah's other son, Onan, heir's brother. And he was ordered by Judah to take, you know, uh, Tamar as his wife. But Onan grudgingly agreed to marry Tamar, but he refused to provide her with a child. You say, why? Well, because if he provides her with a child, then he's responsible for the upbringing of that child, all of the expenses related to the upbringing. But at the end of the day, that child doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Tamar. And so that child would be of no use for him later on in working the family farm, etc. And he just was a greedy man. He wouldn't do it. And God judged Onan the way he had judged Er, Genesis 38, verse 10. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. And so Judah now has lost two of his sons who were both married to Tamar, and he tells uh, Tamar to move in with her father until his third son, Shelah, could come of age. And Judah had promised her that when Shelah comes of age, she could have that third son. He was too young to marry, and so she waits, and she waits, and she waits, and Shelah grows up, and he's old enough to marry, but Judah still won't give Shelah to Tamar. And so she's destitute. She's stuck. There's nothing in the world she can do. Judah is not keeping his promise. Why was Judah not keeping his promise? We don't know. Maybe he somehow blamed Tamar for the loss of his other two sons. Maybe he thought she was just bad luck or worse, you know. Maybe it's like that story we heard about, the lady that had four husbands. So what'd your first husband die of? She said, eating poison mushrooms. Hmm. What'd your second husband die of? Eating poison mushrooms. What'd your third husband die of? He died of eating poison mushrooms. Wow. What'd your fourth husband die of? Gunshot wound. He wouldn't eat the mushrooms. Maybe he thought that Tamar was like that. And yet, even though she had nothing to do with the death of those first two boys, Judah still wouldn't take it. And as a result, Tamar was destitute. She couldn't go out and find a husband. That just wasn't done. And Judah wouldn't keep his promise. And then news came that Judah's wife had died. Genesis 38, verse 12. The wife of Judah died, and when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the, uh, the, Ad, the Adolamite. Um, and so Tamar quickly devised a dark and desperate plan. She replaced the, the dark clothing of the widow with the bright red tight dress of the prostitute. And she positioned herself in the city at just a place when Judah came by, he would take notice of her. Genesis 38, 14. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So she, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now let the full weight of that sink in. Tamar seduced her own father-in-law And that night, Tamar conceived twin sons, Perez and Zerah, Genesis 38, 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed 
Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He didn't like her anyway. He'd lost two sons married to her. Let's burn this woman. But Tamar was cagey, and she had done something. On the night that she made the deal with Judah, she said, give me your ring, your staff, and your cords as, as partial payment. And so when Judah calls her out and says, we're going to burn this woman for her harlotry, she sends those things, the staff, the cords, and the ring to Judah. And she says, the father of these two children in my belly belonged to these three things. It was while she was being brought out, Genesis 38, 25, that she sent her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. And mouths hung open, eyes bulged out. I'm sure nobody could believe it. That stuff belonged to Judah and everybody knew it. And Judah went pale. The old degenerate was forced to confess my sin is worse than hers. Now back away from this soap opera for just a minute. Let me ask you a question. Why would God besmirch his own reputation by deliberately including this woman in his son's genealogy. He could have put anybody in there. He could have excluded anybody. He's God. He's not like us. We have no say over who our family is, right? Some of you guys are about to go have Christmas with people. You have no say over that, you know? Some of y'all got some nuts and bad apples in that family tree. You're going to have, you're about to spend some time with them again. Well, God could put whoever he wanted in his tree. Why would he do that and besmirch his own son's reputation? Second lady that's listed in the tree is Rahab. Rahab, uh, verse Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And to Salmon was born Boaz. By Rahab, by Rahab. Notice he intentionally puts that name in. He doesn't just say, to Salm, uh, and, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and then skip to the next one. He says, by Rahab. And every little Jewish boy growing up knew exactly who Rahab was. Rahab's name was mentioned eight times in the whole Bible, and five of those times it comes with the descriptive term, Rahab the harlot. If you go back to Joshua chapter 2, you, you hear her story. The nation of Israel is about to move into the promised land. Jericho is, is there. They send the spies into Jericho. They come into the house of Rahab the harlot who hides the spies, helps them get out, and they promise her, when we destroy the city, if you'll put a scarlet thread representing the blood of Jesus, if you'll put a scarlet thread in your window, we'll save you and save and, and, and remember this thing you've done for us. And so that Joshua uh, told him, leave her alone. But if you go to Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, they say, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. Notice he says, go into the harlot's house. He doesn't say, go into the woman's house. He doesn't say, go into that great lady's house. He doesn't say, go into that person who helped us so much is how, go into the harlot's house. And that, that moniker stuck to her for the rest of her life. Even in, even in Hebrews 11, when she's included in God's hall of fame, uh, that moniker stays with her. Hebrews 11 verse 13, by Rahab the harlot. Do you got that? 
By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in there. Again, why is she in the lineage? And if she's in the lineage, why did Matthew bother to tell us that? Next one up's Ruth. Ruth didn't do what Tamar and Rahab did. Ruth had a pedigree problem. The, the crazy thing about Ruth is she was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. And the whole thing with the Jews was, we're the chosen people. It's either Jews or Gentiles. It's us and everybody else. And yet in God's lineage of his son, he includes this Moabitess. Do you know Ruth's story? Ruth had a mother-in-law named Naomi. Naomi's husband died, and so she moved in with her two daughters-in-law and her two sons. And then both of her sons died. And so Naomi comes to Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, and she says to them, look, there's nothing left for me. My life is destitute. It's basically over. You girls are young. Go find you another husband. Start life over. You'll be fine. And Orpah leaves. But then Ruth says to her those beautiful lines that are often quoted in a wedding, but they were never spoken between a man and a woman. They were spoken between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she, through the strength of her character, stayed with Naomi, made sure Naomi was okay, and became known as a noble woman to the point that she runs into a wealthy, distant relative named Boaz who took her in as her kinsman redeemer in that leveret marriage and married her and gave her offspring. And God blessed her so that she had a son named Obed, a grandson named Jesse, and a great-grandson named David. But of all the noble women in the nation of Israel, why would God include this non-Jewish refugee in the lineage of his son? The fourth woman is Bathsheba, but she's not even named. Matthew 1 verse 6, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention her name, just says by her who'd been the wife of Uriah. And again, every little Jewish boy knew who that was because they knew the story of David, how David was supposed to be with his army, but he'd stayed back in Jerusalem and he couldn't sleep at night. And he was up on the top of his house and he looks down and there's a woman next door bathing. Somebody says, is that why they called her Bathsheba? I'm like, no, I don't think so, but might have been shower Sheba. I don't know. She was bathing. He saw her. He lusted after her. He sent for her. She came to him. He spent the night with her. She became pregnant. David tries to hide it, and ultimately he winds up killing her son, her husband. And so not only is he a not only is he an adulterer, but now he's a murderer. And God judges this couple by that baby that was conceived in that night of sin uh, dies. And then she becomes pregnant again, and she has another son, and this son is named Solomon. Here's the crazy question. Why was Solomon the heir of David's kingdom? Normally, it was always the firstborn. Now, David had some issues with his firstborn kids, and he had a, his family was basically a mess. But there were at least six sons of David that were older than Solomon. And yet God intentionally included Solomon that would ultimately become a part of the lineage through Bathsheba. It's almost as if God deliberately did that uh, so that that whole sordid mess would wind up in the Christmas tree. And those are just the women. 
If the women were flawed, the men were too. Abraham lied. He told Pharaoh that his wife Sarah was his sister and nearly got her raped. Jacob was a thief. He stole the birthright from his brother. Judas, as we've already talked about, slept with his daughter-in-law. David committed adultery and murder. Solomon was a straight-up hedonist and at one point a near agnostic. Rehoboam was an idiot. I'm sorry, but if you read it, it doesn't say that, but that's what he was. Abijab was a catastrophe. And Manasseh was a nightmare. Manasseh was the worst of the worst. 2 Kings 21.2, He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed for the sons of Israel. Manasseh reinstituted Baal worship and sanctioned it through the government. For he rebuilt, this is 2 Kings 21.3, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Manasseh actually practiced human sacrifice said he made his son to pass through the fire, which means he sacrificed his own sons to a false pagan god. He practiced every form of sorcery and witchcraft imaginable. He worshipped every god that he could possibly think of. He erected a false god there in the temple. And yet there he is, Manasseh, his name. He's swinging in the branches of Jesus' family tree along with all those other deeply flawed people. Here's my point. God isn't like us. We can't pick our relatives, but He can. He could have put whomever He wanted on that family tree. And so naturally, you would assume that He would have put the best and the brightest, you know. But His tree isn't filled with Mother Teresa's and rocket scientists. It's filled with deeply flawed people. Jesus' family tree was like any other. It may be worse. And to me, that's the story. What is He saying to us? Was He saying, I can do anything with anyone? I'm sovereign? Yeah. I think that's part of it. But I think he was also saying, I don't need perfect people to do my perfect will. You see, God uses flawed people. That's the message suspended in the branches of the Christmas tree. That's really the message of the gospel of grace. God uses flawed people. We sometimes forget that. In the church, we can sometimes communicate this idea that God only uses special people. And because we're in the church and we've been in the church for so long, see us, we're the kind of people God uses. And one of the sad things about religion and the sad things even about Christianity is while we are called to sanctification, too often we come across as sanctified and the holy ones become holier than that. Now look, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about holiness. God wants you to be holy. And that's repeated throughout the New Testament. First Peter's 1.16 says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And we don't use this as an excuse for sin. We don't say, well, God uses flawed people, so I better go get some flaws. That's not what he's saying at all. He wants us to be holy, but he understands you and I can't achieve that in our own performance. I can't make myself holy. That's what grace is all about. That God doing for me what I could never do for myself. My holiness is given when I repent of my sin and place my faith in Christ. Our holiness is derived from a relationship we have with Jesus. He declares that which is not holy to be holy because of His Son and what Christ did on the cross. He atoned for our sins. And when we place our faith in what He did on the cross, the grace of Jesus Christ covers us and makes Romans 4.22. And because of Abraham's faith, God, and here's that beautiful word, God counted him righteous. 
He counted him righteous. That word counted is that old accounting term. He logged it into his bank account as righteous. In other words, he credited to his spiritual bank account all the, all the holiness he would ever need to cover all the sin he would ever do. And that wasn't just for Abraham. Uh, Romans 4.23, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Look, God calls me righteous because of Christ and the cross. That doesn't mean that I'm flawless. I still got flaws. and It just means that I'm not identified and defined by my flaws. Despite my flaws, despite the fact that I often lose the battle with the fallen nature, God can still use me. In other words, you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. That's the whole message of Christmas. He didn't come for perfect people. Romans 5.8 says, For even while we were yet sinful, Christ died for us. And that tells us something about the love. Look at the Christmas tree, man. The Christmas tree in Matthew 1 is filled with flawed people. Look at the nativity scene, Matthew 2. It's filled with flawed people. The only perfect person in that, in that nativity scene was that little baby laying in the manger. That's the only perfect one that was there because God used flawed people, and that means He can use you. And I say that because I, I deal with people who live with such regret, and I do too. I mean, we can all think back on that moment in our life where Maybe it was an event, maybe it was a decision, maybe it was an act. It's so embarrassing, we don't ever even want to go there again. And there's this deep-seated sense of regret that goes along with it. Maybe you've been living with that. I was reading an article on a guy named Kevin Hines. He became so depressed and despondent that he decided to take his own life, and he jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And Kevin Hines was one of only 1% of people who attempt suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge that actually survive. And you know what he said in this article? He said this. He said, the millisecond my hands left the rail, it was an instant regret. Can you imagine you have just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and you suddenly regret that decision? And now all you can do is fall. I think that becomes almost a description of the way a lot of people have come to live their lives. I mean, it wasn't an intentional jump off of a bridge, but there was that moment, maybe you messed up with a moral failure or an ethical failure or a legal failure uh, or a relationship failure, or a financial failure. And then that failure seems to have set in motion a course of events that begins to mark your life with regret and despair. And, and it, feels like, it feels like you jumped off a bridge, man. And there's instant regret. And there's nothing you can do about it, but just let the thing play out until you hit bottom. That may be where you are right now. Look, you wonder, can God love me? Can He use me? <laughs> Man, look at the tree. Dude, He used Tamar. He used Rahab. He used Manasseh. 
I mean, those failures will mark your life, but they don't have to define your life. And nothing you ever experience will keep God from using you. He uses flawed people. Here's the second part of that, and I'm done. If God doesn't demand perfection, then neither can we. If the perfect one was not a perfectionist, then you can't be either. (laughs) Some of you guys may have grown up with a perfectionist. You may live under that. You may be that. You know what somebody said a perfectionist is? It's someone who takes great pains and then gives them to others. That's a perfectionist. And you may be in that world right now. Nothing's good enough. Rather than so encouraged, they so fear, and you're constantly evaluated on that, and you're constantly struggling with that sense of despair. And there's a lot of church people who communicate that. When you get your life right, when you start dressing like us, when you start looking like us, when you start thinking like us, then you'll be welcome with us. That is not the message of the Christmas tree. The message of the Christmas tree is, look at the grace that God gives to people that He's given to you. And now what He's given to you, you need to give away. Give the same grace that you were given. My brother Ben is a, he does construction. He's an entrepreneur. He's got a lot of different things he does. For a long time, he did construction, built banks and and uh, uh, strip centers and things like that. And he told me the story one time years ago, early in his business, he, he was doing a remodel for a Bible church lady. She had the big women's Bible study in the whole community. She was well-known and strongly, fiercely opinionated. And everybody respected her, but they kind of walked on eggshells around. You know who I'm talking about? And she had a salon, and she wanted Ben to do a remodel of her salon. And Ben's working with some guys that are kind of rough around the edges. And, you know, a lot of them didn't know Jesus. Most of them didn't. And they were kind of rough guys from a little different background, and certainly a back, different background from what the church lady was from. And so they're doing the reconstruction. All these Christian women are coming and going in the salon while they're doing it. And these guys, you know, do what pagan lost guys do. They start kind of making comments kind of off the, out of the side, and then it gets a little worse. And then they, you know, some Bronx cheers and some wolf whistles, nothing appropriate about it, totally inappropriate. But man, this church lady is some kind of mad. And she calls Ben up and wants an appointment, and she goes to meet with him. And man, Ben said, man, she let me have it. He said, I was in one ear, and when that ear got full, she gave me another ear. And when I ran out of ears, she started giving it somewhere else. It was just constant. And he said it lasted several minutes, and she was saying things like, you need to fire every single person. You need to do this. And so Ben said, man, I'm upset. I go and I line my guys up, and I'm like, guys, I can't believe y'all did this. What were you thinking? I mean, uh, this is ridiculous. And Ben just sort of lays into them for a little while, and he says, if it happens again, I'm firing every one of you. And he said, Tony, put on a shirt and go apologize to that lady. And so the next day he asked him, he said, did you apologize to that lady? And Tony said, man, I tried. He said, she was at it from the get-go and told us how terrible we were and how horrible we were and how what an embarrassment we are and how terrible human beings we are. And he said, I kept telling her, ma'am, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And she never said, I forgive you, it's going to be okay, just don't let, nothing like that. He said, at one point I even told her, ma'am, we weren't whistling at you. (laughs) He said, we'd never think to say that to you. Ben said, that just seemed to make her matter. 
Ben, ben said, well, you did the best you could. Don't worry about it. He said, two days later, he got another phone call. It's from another distraught lady. She said, are you Ben Dye? And Ben thought, oh, here we go again. He said, yes, ma'am. She said, do you have a crew working at such and such an address? And Ben said, yeah, we do. She said, the woman started to cry. She said, yesterday we buried my mother. And as the funeral procession passed your work site, all those men stopped working, took off their hats, bowed their heads, and covered their hearts. She said, would you tell them that what they did in that moment meant the world to me and how much I appreciate it? Being called his crew together again and said, man, I got another call from a lady. And they're all like, we didn't do anything. He's like, no, no. He said, yeah, you did. You did something good. And he told them what they did. And he said, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you guys did for that woman. And then he told me as he was telling the story, he said, Billy, he calls me Billy. Billy, isn't it sad that this woman who spends all that time teaching people about Jesus was so hard and unforgiving? but this callous bunch of non-Christians dem demonstrated real compassion for someone they didn't even know. Mm. Here's the meaning of the Christmas tree. God uses flawed people, and He can use you. I don't know what you're regretting, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can end those regrets, and He can free you from that if you give your heart to Christ and let Him purify your life. And He wants to use you. He's got a plan for your life. You are not defined by your failures. So don't let your failures define you. And if God uses flawed people, now go love flawed people the way He loves you. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? God demonstrating His love for us and that while we were still sinful, Christ died for us. The one who was without sin became sin on our behalf. And He came in the form of little baby, perfect. The only one that wasn't flawed gave Himself for all of us. And He wants to use you. Will you open your heart to Him right now in this moment? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's just be before the Father for a minute with every head bowed and every eye closed, with our hearts lifted toward the heavens, would you just say, God, I need you. I got junk in my life, God, I can't get over. And I need the freedom that comes to deal with the regrets. Would you please forgive me of that and use me? Father, we're so encouraged by what you did with all of these people People like David and Solomon and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. People who would not have fit anybody's pedigree for heirs of the king. And yet you chose people who were just like us, only more so, to demonstrate your glory. I pray for those right now who need to know that they can be free in Christ, that in this moment they would give their heart completely to you. Our righteousness is not our doing. It's something that we receive by grace. And I pray that they would know what it is to be forgiven and healed. Father, I pray for the church. If you're not a perfectionist, then we can't be either. And 
for too many times we come across as unforgiving and heartless. Help us to show them the heart of Jesus. Loves people just like they are. Loves them enough to do whatever we can so that they would know Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.